while the world's attention has been focused on COVID-19, what's going on in Afghanistan, numerous crises with China and Taiwan, etc., a somewhat unremarked crisis is developing in the Middle East that has the potential to reshape not only the geopolitics of the region, but potentially even beyond. Beyond that, it's also potentially one of the most severe humanitarian crises we've seen in a long time. I'm Dr. Nolte, and on this episode of Blind Politics, we'll dive into what has been happening in the small but vitally significant country of Lebanon over the past few years. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another informative episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. If your podcast provider has a rating service, please give us that five-star rating as it helps people notice the podcast. We don't advertise. We don't clutter up the space with a lot of ads. We pass the news about the podcast entirely through word of mouth. So please not only rate and subscribe, but tell your friends as well. So this episode is one that's near and dear to my heart. It focuses on a country that I have been studying and thinking about for a long time. And I am incredibly pleased to have two guests to discuss what's going on in Lebanon today with me, who are both dear friends, who are both connected to Regent and the Regent community, and who are two of the most knowledgeable people that I could find about what's been happening in Lebanon and what's going on currently on the ground. So with me today are Maylee Melky-Constantine and Justin Murph. Maylee, Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. All right. So let me give you each a chance to introduce yourselves and sort of talk a little bit about your background with, with issues involving Lebanon. Maylee, uh, ladies first. Thank you, Dr. Nolte. This is such an honor to, to have this platform here at, at Regent University. And my name is Maylee Melky, as, as you said, and I'm a second year law student at the Regent University School of Law, born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon. My worldview is very, very shaped by the multiple crises that I witnessed as a child and then as a teenager in my home country. Actually, the reason I moved my education to the United States is because I was across the street from one of the largest bombings in 2012, two years after the assassination of our uh, Prime Minister, Rafiq al-Hariri. And so just kind of seeking a, a safe haven for education here, and I'm very, very pleased and just humbled by how the Lord has made this possible. My family, Camille and Hoda Melki, my parents founded an organization called Heart for Lebanon in 2006 as a response to what happened in the region. And that has continuously been just a passion of mine to look at how we can best respond as Christians, but as also faithful professionals in the field and influencing our channels of influence. I got a master's from Indiana University in public administration to try to give back to the nonprofit sector. I worked in that for three years before law school. And right now, just praying that the law will be a new venue to be able to serve my country as the rule of law breaks down and we see this really ongoing, horrific humanitarian crisis before us. Thanks so much, Maylee. Justin? Hi, I'm Justin Murph. I serve as a nonprofit development executive. I've worked with a number of different organizations, including the Christian Broadcasting Network there on the Regent University campus. 
Currently, I serve as canon for international affairs for the jurisdiction of the armed forces and chaplaincy for the Anglican Church in North America. And in some of my nonprofit work, I've come across the ministries like Heart for Lebanon and others that organizations that I've had the privilege of working with and for support. And just recently returned from a ministry assessment trip in Beirut on the ground looking at the situation. And, you know, Lebanon has been for for years kind of the bright shining star for Christianity, the only country in the Middle East where Christians by law have to serve in one of the key integral parts of government. The president has to be Christian by the, the agreement from the Civil War. And yet, as BBC reporter Paul Wood just yesterday in his article reports, living in Beirut and watching Beirut over the past decade, and particularly over the past few years, is like watching a nation slowly slitting its own throat with no one being able to stop the bleeding. And I can attest to that firsthand after just coming back from Beirut. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. And and very critically important topic. And I think you've alluded to some of the reasons why. Before we get into some of that, though, I do need to make one plug. I said there was no advertising. That was a little white lie, because I do have to say that Justin is a graduate and may I say a distinguished graduate of Regent University's Robertson School of Government. So if you come here for school and you get one of our degrees, you might be as cool as Justin one day to the series. So Justin, you mentioned that Lebanon was sort of a, a bright shining star for, for Christians and was really important to Christians in the Middle East. Could you expand on that just a little bit? Yeah, you know, when people think of Christianity, they often think of the, the, the big nation right to the south of Lebanon. But the reality is, is that, you know, Jesus ministered in Lebanon. The early church flourished in Lebanon. Christianity has been there for 2,000 years. Whereas all the other countries have faced horrific hardships and the church has gone into hiding, the church has despite tremendous persecution over 2,000 years, has ebbed and flowed and surged and yet survived in Lebanon. As a result of the, the, the long civil war, the peace accord outlined a sharing of government by sectarian parties. And so the, the Christians under the guise of the Malachite church was able to secure the right to the presidency of the country. And that's historically kind of been the case. And so you've had Muslims, Christians co-ruling this Middle Eastern country and yet enter in post-Civil War, a period of of somewhat peace and negotiation, but really massive corruption in the government. Then add to it the, the Syrian conflict, which sent millions of Syrian refugees into Lebanon. Lebanon, by the way, now having more refugees per capita than any other country in the world. There are more refugees living in Lebanon than there are native Lebanese. And so that has led to a tremendously huge financial crisis on the country and a financial crisis that NATO countries like the United States, Canada, Great Britain have been very hesitant to actually help alleviate because of who is involved in the Lebanese politics, namely political parties like Hezbollah, which the United States does list as a terrorist organization. And so because of that involvement by Hezbollah and the government, the United States, Canada, many of the NATO allies have just taken a a step back and a hands-off approach in helping to alleviate the situation. You know, when I was there recently, power, people were lucky if they got two hours of electricity a day when I was there just a few weeks ago. Now, you know, they've had, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking. Uh, It seems like only a third of businesses are open One Christian leader in the country described it to me as Venezuela during the weekdays and Ibiza on the weekends. 
And it's this dichotomy of just the cultures, class, economics, all swirling in that are really leading towards a, a perilous cliff that it seems that they're sprinting towards with no, no ability to stop. So let's back up a bit, Meili, and, and talk about, you mentioned your family kind of stepping in with Heart for Lebanon in 2006 in, in response to conditions. So can you talk about what were the conditions that led your, your parents to found Heart for Lebanon? And then what has their work been like, as, you know, as much as you can, I know some of it's probably confidential because of some of the stuff that you guys work on, but just as much as you can, as you feel comfortable telling us about kind of what Heart for Lebanon has been doing. Yeah, of course. And, and it's just, it's a passion of mine to be able to talk about all that the Lord has done to see this ministry grow since 2006. And before I jump into that, I just want to reiterate and thank Justin for this kind of great overview uh, from a historic and political standpoint of how to paint Lebanon and position it in the Middle East right now. And I can attest to everything that he said. Uh, my husband's there. My family is there. The electricity is just as bad, if not worse. And the shortage of every basic good continues to escalate with what is going on. Heart for Lebanon was founded in 2006 after the July summer war between Hezbollah and Israel. And, and that's intentional. It wasn't between the Lebanese government and Israel. It was between Hezbollah and Israel. And uh, my dad was the president of a Bible college, of the Mediterranean Bible College at the time. And just seeing a void in terms of the church's response. You know, 2006, it had been over 10 years since the civil war had ended and the church, the Lebanese church had become very hopeless. Those who had survived the civil war were like, yay, we, you know, we made it out. Right. And then this hits again and they were not ready for that. I mean, at this point, you're talking about just another huge setback. And so Heart for Lebanon started out of our home going to the northern part of Lebanon that was the most affected and door to door, whether it was a sweater that we were giving out to the elderly or, or, or a little heating uh, device because the winter was coming upon us. And I remember very vividly as, you know, I was a teenager at the time thinking, I don't know why mom and dad, you know, are doing this. Why are, why, why are we doing this? Why are they dragging me into this? And they kept praying as if God was preparing their hearts for something bigger. And then knowing how many Iraqi Christians were left uncared for in the country, started responding to that through the discipleship groups. And then unknowing the Lord had prepared us for what Justin just mentioned, the second largest humanitarian crisis after World War II, which is the Syrian refugee crisis in 2011 that hit. We were positioned to be able to respond and moving people from despair to hope is, is what we say in hope in Christ and Christ alone, because now you're serving who used to be your enemy and who is your enemy if it weren't for Jesus Christ, which is we had been occupied by Syria for years and years and years up until 2005 officially and then and unofficially in many ways. And so Heart for Lebanon really has education at the center in terms of educating refugee children and non-formal education, Bible studies. And then after that, over a period of 10 years came worship gathering groups and just what, what you look at as the, the first church, churches started to sprint out of people from non-Christian backgrounds and just organically because of the love of Jesus Christ that they were experiencing through, whether it was through a transactional food package or a discipleship or their kids being educated. And that is just the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God over the last several years and then hit the protest in 2009, the economic downfall, the August 4 explosion, and the Lebanese need and our expansion today to serve the Lebanese 
and meet their needs as as they continue to suffer through this crisis. And I, I want to say one thing about Heart for Lebanon. It is completely driven, not just by the compassionate heart of Jesus Christ, but also his guidance and his support. And we cannot, I cannot say today that this is where we knew Heart for Lebanon was going to be. Uh, it started as a small response to our, you know, <laughs> we have families on the north who need blankets and sweaters, and we're going to respond to that. And then the Lord has opened door after door after door. And to see today that you have two churches, that you have uh, schools and kids being changed forever and a mindset being changed towards Christ is something that is to be uh, to him be the glory. Now, let me add to that real quick, because what Meili is not mentioning, which is absolutely worth mentioning, <laughs> is that ministry, Heart for Lebanon, played a crucial role in helping to pivot the mindset of many Lebanese Christians. Because you have to remember the Syrians in particular, during the Civil War, it was Syrian forces that were slaughtering Lebanese Christians. And so when the Syrians came in, the church was fe- was faced with a really difficult very, very difficult task. Do we truly love our neighbor? Do we truly love those and bless those who persecute us? Mm. Or do we turn the other cheek and just walk away and, and say good riddance? And I, and I will tell you, it has been ministries like Heart for Lebanon that have challenged the church and have been a prophetic voice to the church saying, no, 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 despite the history, despite the past, despite the hardships, despite the fact that Every single family in the room had someone that was killed at the hands of a Syrian. Mm-hmm. We're going to love them. We're going to give them the resources and we're going to share with what we have. And now even with what little we have. And today, what I saw on this recent trip was even some of these Syrian refugee families now figuring out ways to even share with Lebanese families mm. because they, they have, they're reciprocating back. And it's, you know, keep in mind, Lebanon is one of the only countries in the whole region where you can legally change your religious identity. And so one could almost say it's not by accident that all of these people would come to a country where they could freely change their religious identity, find Christ, and then go back changed. And so it's been crucial. And, and ministries like, like Heart for Lebanon, churches like Resurrection Church Beirut, which, which the pastor, Hikmikash, we pretty much told his people, look, we're going to love these folks. And if you are with us, great. If you're not with us, good luck finding another church, but we're going to move forward. You know, these are two of the greatest partners that we've supported and our organizations that I work with have supported for years. What an incredible story. And thank you both for, for sharing it. And we'll put links to both Heart for Lebanon and, and Resurrection Church in, in the show notes because uh, the needs, as we'll discuss here in a minute, are, are great. And so we're going to be encouraging folks to give what they can to support those ministries. I want to pivot back to something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, Mealy, which are the 2019 protests. Actually, earlier in Blind Politics, sort of shortly after we, we launched, one of my earlier episodes was on those protests. You were, as I remember, in country at the time. I was. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about what that was like. You know, that's a, a really good question because that's a whole other layer, right, of passion and drive for my country that kind of was instilled in me in that moment. And as Justin mentioned, we all have a story, right, in history. So like my parents grew up in the in, shelter, in bomb shelters as kids during Civil War. My dad was kidnapped multiple times and on, on the hands of, of Syrian militants and others. And, and so they have overcome, right, their own 
trauma and PTSD and all of that stuff. And then you have my generation, right? We were raised, kids who were raised through that generation thought, you know, that's our parents' story. And then you experience bombings yourself. And then you see something like in 2009 that happened and you thought, this is the glimmer of hope, right? This is what my parents, you know, struggled for. This is why they survived. This is what the church fought for. And, and here we are, we're going to make a change. And then the biggest disappointment of them all happens. And so in 2019, just to give your listeners a little bit of a context, if they didn't already hear the other podcast, it's just what happened. There was a small tax that was imposed. And then the Lebanese had started to catch up on the 30 years of this Ponzi scheme that was happening and the economic downfall. And the entire country went to the street. It was the first time in 2005, 2 million Lebanese went to the street to kick out Syrian occupation, but this was different, right? This crossed sectarian state lines, this crossed uh, religion, it crossed economic lines, it crossed everything. This was the Lebanese literally coming together. We cannot live anymore. Our economy and our livelihoods are at stake. And, and I was there. I went down to the street with my friends every single day for multiple weeks. It was, it started off as this is it. This is, this is the make it or break it for the next generation. It was my generation mostly, those who, of us who were, who were raised by parents of war, by kids of war, who, who, were, who were there. We went all across the country, whether it was in the, in the capital heart of, of, of Beirut and in, in the in Martyr Square is what we call it, or whether it was in our hometowns. And it really felt like the country was coming together. We were demanding that at the time it was Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri, Rafiq al-Hariri's son, who was prime minister. We demanded a change of government. We demanded early elections so we can change the current parliament and all of that stuff. Because also what's important to realize is that every single one in the ruling class today, whether Christian, Muslim, or whatever religion they come from, these were ex-warlords. These folks led the civil war that I'm talking to you about that has, you know, scarred an entire generation. And so we're still being, our ruling class is, has still not healed from the horrors of the past. And so you're still reliving all of that, whether or not under peace, you know, just where there's no combat or through governmental processes and systems, which is what's happening. And so we took to the streets October 23rd, I think, or somewhere in October, Prime Minister Hariri stepped down, a new government was elected, we thought this was it. Parliament, no early elections, nothing happened, and it just has been downhill since then. And I am sad to report, Dr. Nolte, that every single person, including myself, who was in the streets during that time, 2009, October, November, December timeframe, have left Lebanon. We have left to pursue higher education because we knew that we were not able to do what we were supposed to do. We couldn't infiltrate the corrupt ruling class in a way through civil protests. And I won't go into, into all of the details, what happened and why there are so many factors, whether internal or external, but even internal, it did not work the way that it should. And, and, that, and that negligence carried over, as we saw in 2020, you had... <laughs> 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate explode because of corruption. So under the new government, right, that was that happened after the protest. And so nothing changed. What changed was the visibility. What changed was that we became liberated and free as a generation to go and say we are going to pursue what's in our best interest so we can better serve our country in the future, so we can better serve our church in the future. That it was a liberating time, but did it 
it, it maybe it maybe moved the ball a little bit for the young Lebanese to say, you know, I have to look somewhere else so I can be of benefit, so I can help the church. I think what also worked during that time is that the church became more vocal. The church went to the streets with the people. The church became involved. It saw the hurt and it, and it came face to face with the realization that we need to wake up after the civil war and after this sense of helplessness. We had organizations filling the gap and, 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 and a few churches like a Resurrection Church that Justin mentioned, you know, they were ahead of the game, like Heart for Lebanon and others. They were like, okay, we're, we're working, but not everyone was in that stage. And I think that played a very good role of a kind of a wake up call but from a, my legal hat, my political hat, all of that, there's a long way to go before we really see change. But I'm so grateful for that experience because it, it is the reason I came to law school. It's the point on the street where I saw the rule of law non-existent. It's the place that I experienced where there's really no accountability. There's nothing that could be done if we don't join institutions and change and do reforms through the proper ways. So I'm grateful for that. I pray that all of us who left will be able to be agents of change once we have enough tools under our, our belt and that this is not a point of just leaving our country behind, but rather of uh, investing in ourselves for a better Lebanon. So, you know, the other thing that I would add to that is that there's there's a couple of caution points. The, the most stable, well-organized institutions in the country right now are the church. That's, I mean, that's it. It's it, when you look at infrastructure, the ability to give care, the ability to provide resourcing. It, the church is the most stable, the second most stable institution. I would argue would be the military. However, keep in mind, a year ago, average military salary was a thousand U.S. dollars a month, very livable by Beirut standards. Today, that same military salary is worth eighty U.S. dollars because of the inflation. Two years ago, you would get the lira, 1,500 lira to, to a dollar. Today, that has skyrocketed. 100 US dollars is almost 2 million lira. So to, to put, I mean, just think about the massive inflation. We're talking, you know, upwards of, of 80%, 90% inflation. And so, you know, th- that's just the internal financial crisis. Then you add the external, the EU in their benevolence, you know, I guess is what they would consider it, gave loans to Lebanon at exorbitant interest rates with the condition that that money can only be used to buy medicine from European Union pharmaceutical companies. So that way it didn't violate NATO and it wasn't providing funding to the government, but it was technically helping the people. But at such a rate that there was no way for the Lebanese government to be able to repay those loans. And so they've defaulted, which is why hospitals have run out of supplies, clinics don't even have medicine. The $10,000 worth of prescription drugs we were able to bring into the country a few weeks ago was, we, when we talked to one clinic, was the first time they had had ibuprofen or Tylenol in months. And, and this, is, this is the Paris of the East. You know, this is, what, this is what Beirut was. And I think it's a huge warning lesson for us in the West to say, you know, look, if it can happen in the most arguably significant, stable, you know, beautiful area. Look, it can happen anywhere. And so we just have to be cautious. I think what, you know, there's a brain drain that that's a big concern, but what Maylee's talking about is not just 
leaving, but retooling. And Lord willing, hopefully someday, the opportunity to rebuild a better Lebanon for, for the future. Yeah, mainly it sounds like for, for you and your friends, it's more sort of a, a temporary, almost exile of, of you know, getting, getting skills so that you can go back rather than, I know in, in sort of previous waves of, of the Lebanese diaspora during the Civil War and so on and so forth, it's okay, we need to get out and, you know, maybe build a life somewhere else. So would you say that sort of is, is the difference of attitude that you've seen with, with folks in your generation coming out of the protests? I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't generalize it that way because I do still think that there are a lot who are just disappointed. I mean, you're talking about this is the third generation now, right, of disappointment. And so that's my prayer. That's my hope that we would view this differently than the generation of the Civil War who fled and never looked back and who haven't returned many for 30, 40 years. I think I saw that, I saw that spirit on the streets. I saw a different level of commitment to our country. Everyone I talked to who has left since, whether for work or education or, or just a fleeing situation to recover, you know, has that yearning. But I do not see that happening in the near future, unfortunately, just because it's, it, it will take the Lord. It'll take a miracle. It takes a calling. My dad always said this when I asked him because my dad got his Master's of Divinity in the United States, had several opportunities to stay here. And even during the 2006 war, we were here on, on, a, on a ministry trip and we made a decision as a family to go back home. And I asked him all the time and he, he says, it takes a calling to serve your country. It, you need to be called to Lebanon because the conditions under which you live from a, on, on paper look really, really, really bad. And it's not just from a... Not just do you need reforms, but this was expected. If you look at the trends, if you look at what economists have said over the years, if you look at politicians and analysts, this was inevitable. The warning signs have been there. So many countries, I think, could have could have detected this trend. We had an opportunity to change in 2009, and that's a lost opportunity right there. It, it exploded and it never returned. And then you, you compound that with what happened on August 4th and, and subsequently. And as Justin mentioned, any salary right now is 12% of it what, what it used to be worth. 12% if you're getting paid in Lebanese pounds, 12% of what it used to be. 52% of Lebanese today, according to the World Bank right now, live in poverty. I'm a legal intern with the World Bank this semester, and, and I can attest firsthand that these numbers are are striking no one understands what is what is going on you have seven percent of what of what you used to be able to need now is costing you an inflation of 700 percent increase i mean literally one out of every three children in lebanon today will go to bed hungry yep that's the reality lebanese and refugee alike yes that's correct and there is no middle class middle class is gone correct the middle class has become impoverished. The impoverished have become completely destitute, and yet somehow manage a, a tiny ruling elite still manage to have have resources. But many of them are fleeing and and leaving. And and the problem ultimately is going to be the Lebanese people have got to decide a different path than 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 what's happened. And and that's the big question: is will they and can they? We have an opportunity, we, and, and I don't know if we're going to seize it. We have an opportunity. We have elections coming up in May 2022, but we know how that goes, right? And I, as a Christian, believe I can pray for that change. Um, I can pray that, that those elections will lead and yield changed fruit. 
I strongly believe in that, but, but it does take faith because if you look at history, we've had hope and faith in upcoming elections and we have not seen change. And the fact that the voting population is so dispersed today in the diaspora across the world is posing a risk on, on percentage of voters. But that's a big prayer request. And, and I believe in that. And I think that that is one way we still have somewhat of democratic processes, uh, thank God. And we are proud about that. And we just, you know, pray a hedge of protection over what can happen. Because there is no way to fight the ruling class in violence. And I don't think my generation wants to see another civil war because it's so fresh in our minds, right? What has happened to our parents. I mean, I have stories that I cannot even articulate that I have heard from my parents and their experiences. And so we don't want that. But once people are going hungry, as Justin said, this is the fear. You are, you are desperate, right? You, you want to provide at any cost for your family. And this is the role of the church. The church needs to be strengthened where it is. And where it is, is growing on just God's provision. And we continuously pray for that. And we pray for it to be coupled by a different ruling class. And, and I say that in Jesus' name and whoever's hearing say a prayer, we really, we really need it. Yeah, if ever there was a country that needed breakthrough, Lebanon is it. Amen. I think you guys have done an excellent job talking about some of the, the macro conditions. But Justin, I know you were just there recently on a, on a trip for, for the ministry that you work with. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what you saw on the ground and maybe you know, some stories that will help you know, take it from this big context with, with numbers and stuff like that into if you were to walk down the streets of Beirut today, you know, for our listeners, what would you see? What, what would you what would you be seeing? Well, the first thing that I noticed was about a, a third of the stores were open, you know, places that I would have been to before restaurants I've been at stores I've, I've purchased things at before. They just were gone. They were closed, shuttered up. That was that was the, the first striking thing. The second striking thing was the line, usually when you fly into Lebanon, there's a pretty good mix between Lebanese and, and foreign nationals at the, you know, when you get off the plane. And there were very few foreign nationals. There were no Lebanese in the arrival hall when on the plane I was at, which I found completely striking. But yet on my flight out, there was not a seat empty on the flights out from Lebanon. The, the level of despair and shock is palpable in the air. The fact that knowing, you know, if, if you got sick, you know, even from a, a minor scrape to, you know, something as serious as COVID, there really isn't a hospital or a clinic that is suitable to treat those needs at this point. It's severe and the situation on the ground is, is, is desperate. I travel all throughout the region. It is no exaggeration to say that it is I, I would have an easier time getting medical treatment in, in Baghdad or Erbil or, or anywhere in Iraq than I would in, in Beirut right now. So that's, that's kind of a, a reality. What I've also seen, though, are the church coming together to, to serve the people in their community, to open up their homes and their pantries, to loving their neighbors, to cooking extra portions and providing it with the elderly in their community, families really pulling together. A lot of Lebanese over here, sending resources back home to family and friends over there. There's a tremendous opportunity for the church in the West to, to be the church globally and to love our Christian brothers and sisters and support churches and ministries in Lebanon. There are those who, like Meili said, feel called to stay. 
And for those who feel called to stay, they need our support. They need our prayers. They need our financial support. They need resources such as medicine so that they can stay, so that they can be there to vote. They can be there to be a part of what's happening on the ground. And, and there are those who are called to go out and retool, and there are those who have accepted a call to stay. And they really do seriously need our support and our, and our prayers. I had one pastor tell me that he was so tired when we had lunch. And I said, why? And he said, well, I've preached three times this morning because all the other pastors in our area didn't have gas to get to church. And so I ended up preaching at three different churches because I was the one that had gas. People are waiting eight hours in line to put 20 liters, a quarter of a tank in, you know, of gas. And so people are, are having to make some very serious discussions. How are you supposed to, if you have a job, work your job when you can't even afford the gas to get to where you need to go, much less find the gas that you need to go? And so the situation for many is is untenable and yet there are those who are staying and it's some of the most amazing things that i've seen on the ground you know like i said they, they need our personal need our support mainly is there anything you want to add you know from things that you're hearing from your from your folks back in country yeah i, I just want to say that it is something that we have never experienced before i did not grow up like this we were a you know regular middle class family and now i'm going i'm going to beirut actually on thursday and um, my suitcase is full of, of of medication never had to do this before and i'm talking med medication like tylenol exactly what justin said like really basic things i <laughs> funny story like if you have an allergic, I had an allergic reaction the night before uh, my wedding. You can't even find over the counter just basic allergy medicine. You can't find baby formula, diapers, any of that stuff. And so this is the situation that you are like, how did we get here? But also you have stories of, of unbelieving provision and just of hope. Part for Lebanon part, partnered with a local small business startup because Kids are, you know, they don't have like the small baby formula or the food or anything like that. And there was a young disabled baby that we found out about in one of the families that, that Heart for Lebanon serves. And we were able to couple that with a small startup that is just led by a very fierce, godly woman uh, called to Lebanon to be able to help that. And you've never seen that before. You never saw that level of partnership, indigenous partnership before helping. And then we had others who are offering free kinds of therapy and, and, and whatnot. And, and the Lord is really raising up those um, transformational stories. And I, I think from the ground, this is the most beautiful thing is the collaboration, the cooperation and the support within, uh, whether it is ministries or just small uh, organizations and families. And so I think it's best that we continue to focus on the hopeful message, but recognize the state of despair that the reality is portraying for us and continue to be able to just kind of offer the tangible support and prayers, as well as just the churches investing in the church, in the local church in Lebanon for those who are, who, who remain to be, to be there. Exit question for both of you. People who are listening to this, my listeners, are, are maybe thinking, okay, what can I do to help? What are practical steps? Obviously, prayer is, is, is one for, for people of prayer, but what are practical things that people who are listening to this that are moved by what's happening in Lebanon can do to help? Amelie, we'll start with you, and then, and then uh, Justin, you can, you can bring us home. Honestly, it's, 
I know this is very generic, but we do need different kinds of prayers. We need prayer, right? You see a lot of social media campaigns, pray for Lebanon, pray for so-and-so, pray for that, pray for that. But, but I think Dustin said it well, we need pray for a breakthrough. And this is a very important point. That's something that one can do from the comfort of their home. In tangible ways, if you know of a Lebanese family in the area, ask about how they're connected to the country. What are basic needs that could be needed? And if you are a Christian minister and you want to invest in helping the, strengthen the church, get connected with organizations that are inve- investing and raising up and discipling the next generation of church leaders there. Because we need indigenous leaders to continue to be able to infiltrate this different mindset support organizations that are on the ground now more than ever. I think that is one way that you could really, really help. And also it's it's a big ask, but sometimes doing what Justin just did and going and seeing it firsthand changes the mindset. I know that's not possible for everyone, but if whenever someone gets the opportunity to do that, that would be wonderful. And also just, I think we need to educate ourselves on the history of how we got here. This is not just a, a another humanitarian crisis. This is a compounded crisis over several years. And reading up on it, I think, is something that will, and praying about how God wants you to respond, will be very enlightening for each and for each different person. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I'd recommend is supporting local churches like Resurrection Church. You can visit their website at rcbeirut.org. And if you want to give just backslash donate rcbeirut.org backslash donate and uh, you know they're they're a phenomenal local church with multiple campuses that is also providing education they're doing medical clinics outreach relief efforts those are those are very practical things that just one local church but it's having a tremendous regional impact is doing the other thing that you know you could do is support organizations like heart for lebanon simply heartforlebanon.org and by donating there, you are able to give safe and securely to both of those organizations right from the comfort of your home here in the United States. I'd encourage you to pray to give once or even give monthly. You know, Heart for Lebanon, as an example, is, is trusted by the ECFA, Charity Navigators, their GuideStar Platinum. So amongst the highest of recognized nonprofits in the United States. And so you can give with confidence and support either one of those tremendous ministries, but heartforlebanon.org or rcbeirut.org. Well, thank you both so much for doing this podcast. I think this has been one of the more powerful and profound episodes that we've done. And I would encourage everyone to check out those those two ministries, Heart for Lebanon and Resurrection Church Beirut. And thank you both so much for sharing your stories, your experiences, your, your knowledge with us about this crisis that maybe doesn't get some of the attention that some of the other things that are happening right now around the the world do. But Lebanon is such a pivotal country. It's a country where for centuries, there was a kind of pluralism. You had Christians, you had Shia, you had Druze, all living, if not in perfect harmony, but all recognizing this place as a place where they could be free to live and practice their, their faith in freedom. And so if we're ever going to have a future for sort of pluralism, uh, religious pluralism, even religious freedom in the Middle East. Lebanon is one of the places where it has to start. 
And so I would just strongly support everything that Maylee and Justin have said about the importance of this and about the need for us as Christians and as people who care about the Middle East and as people who care about things like religious freedom to, to get involved there. So I would add my, my pitch to theirs. So uh, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Share the podcast with your friends and family on social media. And I'm going to specifically ask you if you've been listening for a while, share this one. Share this one. Put this one out on social media pass this one around because we as, as Christians and as, as um, Americans and just in general as, as people who care about faith and freedom and, and all the things we talk about in this podcast, this is one that we, we need to be engaged on and, and telling folks about. So please do share this one in particular. And so that's going to conclude us for today and for Blind Politics. This is Dr. Nolte signing off.